The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Wakey, wakey, everybody. It's Monday morning. You're watching Scorebox and these are your headlines. U.S. Democrats taking drastic action with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calling lawmakers back to Congress to tackle the Postal Service dispute as White House senior advisor Jared Kushner defends President Trump's handling of the COVID crisis. You know, 50 states, which means you have 50 CEOs and his job is to work with all of them. Some people have chosen to play politics with the pandemic. President Trump has opted not to politicize it and he's done everything possible to try to figure out how to help people get uh, whatever care they need. Uh, the president, Mr. Trump, piles pressure on Chinese firms, saying he could extend his ban on TikTok to include Alibaba, as trade talks are postponed indefinitely. China's been buying a lot of, a lot of things, uh, and they're doing that to keep me happy, but they're dreaming about Joe Biden. They would love to have that happen, but I don't think that's going to happen. Berkshire Hathaway sells down its bank stakes as Warren Buffett's investment firm cuts positions in Wells Fargo, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, dumping almost $13 billion worth of shares across sectors in total. And second wave fears sweeping Europe as France reports more than 3,000 new virus cases in a day, whilst Germany issues a fresh travel warning against Spain. Happy Monday, everybody. Look, I'm back after a couple of weeks on vacation. That's a holiday to you and I in England. Uh, but I've got a little treat for you. If you can hang on for 55 minutes, maybe about an hour, a little treat for you at 7 a.m. local time, okay? Something that hasn't happened since the 13th of March. Just teasing it up. It's going to be big. Anyway, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called back lawmakers from their annual summer recess, that's like a vacation, uh, to vote on legislation that would block controversial changes to the Postal Service. Funding for the USPS has become a crucial sticking point in the new stimulus negotiations. The president has repeatedly claimed that mail-in ballots, ballots are mainly to fraud in the November election and could support his rival Joe Biden. Uh, Pelosi hit out at Trump's comments, saying he was, quote, a threat to the life of American democracy. The Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer also took aim at Mr. Trump, saying his actions may put the results of the election in doubt. Donald Trump is aimed at hurting the elections. He wants, he has said, this man has no limits. Unlimited gall. He says he wants to slow down the mail to hurt the elections and make people doubt the results of the election. Maybe he's worried he's going to lose. It doesn't matter. Our elections are sacred. Men and women have died for them and the right to vote. White House senior advisor Jared Kushner has told CNBC in an exclusive interview that the president has dealt with the COVID crisis in a, quote, responsible way. He defended uh, the Trump administration's response as uh, we asked him if a national coronavirus strategy should have been pursued. Over five million cases, a lot of concern. And across the board, there's been so much, um, frankly, um, problem in terms of state by state trying to tackle this disease. Was it a mistake not to have a national program? Because now you have the Vice President Biden uh, train moving from the station and saying that we should have a mask mandate across the United States. Um, 
when you take a step back and think about this, was it a huge mistake on the part of the administration not to tackle this nationally? Yeah, so I, I disagree with the premise of your question because we have uh, tackled this nationally. Well, I'll explain that. First of all, Vice President Biden put out seven things that he would do if he was in charge. All seven things of those have been done, okay? Uh, with regards to a national strategy, the job of the federal government was to get the resources that the country needed. You heard all these hysterical, hysterical reports about doctors on the front lines not being able to get masks, not having enough ventilators. You had governors requesting a lot more ventilators than they needed. Uh, again, every patient in America who needed a ventilator got a ventilator. President Trump distributed them properly. He uh, used the Defense Production Act to manufacture ventilators. We created a project the Airbridge. We were able to bring in from Asia, I think, you know, hundreds of, of, of millions of masks. Maybe now it's over a billion uh, masks. We started domestic production by using the Defense Production Act. Now we have Honeywell, 3M, many other country companies making it. Uh, we've scaled testing. We've done more testing than anyone in the world. And that's because we use the Defense Production Act uh, with U.S. cotton and with, uh, with Puritan up in Maine. And we started producing swabs at, at quantities that they were never needed before. We created, uh, we had over 80 EUAs to, to create new antigen tests for how to test for this. So the federal government has done a lot to stimulate the supply. Every governor that's needed the resources, we've dealt with them, we've done it. Governors run the states. The president has supported mask mandates in states like Texas. He supported what Governor Ducey did, where he said, uh, I'm going to let the local uh, people make the decisions on mask mandates, and many of them did. And then states like Wyoming, where they don't have a lot of spread, President Trump is not going to, from Washington, tell them how to run their states. So we're here as a resource. The vice president's task force and our medical experts have been informing the president every day. His, he's been making decisions based on data, and he's been balancing between how do we make sure that we do everything possible uh, to, to deal with the disease, and also how do we make sure we uh, protect our economy? Because if we get out of this, we're making great progress on a vaccine, the fastest vaccine uh, in history from, uh, from, from creation to phase three trial was 13 months. President Trump did it in four months for the first one, four months in one week for the second one, and we have six vaccines that are currently being mass produced as they're going through full FDA-approved uh, phase three trials. Once that happens, this disease will get to a place where it gets solved and the president's dealing with it. Uh, but once that happens, you have to have a country left. You have to have an economy left. And our economy has done much better than other places. Right now, uh, people predicted we'd be at a 20% unemployment rate, which means you know, 35, 40 million Americans who'd be unemployed. Right now, we're at 16 million, which means a lot of people are able to feed their families, feel good about it. We did uh, historic economic interventions. This is a global pandemic. It came from China. It came into our country. It's, it's ravaged many countries throughout the world. And I think President Trump has dealt with it in a very responsible way. And he's done his best to make sure that he can serve the American citizens properly. And I think a lot of people think it's been a great success. So no regrets. Look, there's always things you could do differently. Uh, but again, this is an unprecedented challenge. And I think he's made a lot of right decisions, but he's worked with the governors. Look, I was talking with the governor of Florida uh, yesterday, right? Uh, if you look at his case fatality rate against other governors, he's done a lot of things better than other governors. You have some governors that operate better than other governors. And that's just the way that this country works, right? You know, we're not, uh, we have, you know, 50 states, which means you have 50 CEOs, and his job is to work with all of them. Some people have chosen to play politics with the pandemic. President Trump has opted not to politicize it, and he's done everything possible to try to figure out how to help people get uh, whatever care they need. All right, well, that's the case for the defense. Let's get to Peter Slevin, who is professor of politics and media at Northwestern University. Peter, I say uh, you might have a different view. I don't know. What do you think? Did Jared Kushner there saying the president has dealt with this in a responsible way, he's done his best, and has not played politics unlike others? What do you think of those comments, Peter? 
Well, nice to be with you, Steve. It's a, I think Mr. Kushner has a rather selective uh, selection of, uh, of points that he's made. The fact is there has been no national strategy. It's been very clear that that's the case. Um, you had Donald Trump with, very, with mixed messages at best. He was saying, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, get people back to school. At one point, he wanted to see the pews filled uh, at Easter. And the evidence couldn't be clearer when you have a country with 25% of the deaths around the, around the world in one single country. Um, and things are not getting better, contrary to what Mr. Kushner predicted several months ago. So, so what does it come down to next, Peter? Because, of course, we've all got early November uh, in our focus now as well. In your own notes, you point out about the consistent lead that Mr. Biden has at the moment, unlike, let's face it, uh, Hillary Clinton, who was a divisive figure uh, throughout the run-up to the last election as well. What does this election come down to? Does it come down to COVID-19? Does it come down to um, the economy as it normally does? Or is there something else we need to look at? Well, it's just a little bit of everything, isn't it? There's never a dull moment in American politics these days. You have Donald Trump losing significant support among many of the voters um, who supported him in 2016 and carried him very narrowly past Hillary Clinton, especially, he's especially losing steam among uh, women in the suburbs who are just simply tired of, um, of the drama. And he's losing also significantly among voters older than 65 who are very frustrated with the government response, the federal government response to the pandemic. Biden is presenting himself as a calming figure, a unifying figure, um, someone who um, he, he often says, will not, we will not have to think about every day and wondering what on earth he's tweeting. Um, in terms of vigor being injected uh, into the campaign from the uh, Democratic side, uh, you point out that as a 77-year-old <clears throat> candidate, Mr. Biden needs that vigor, and he's getting it from Kamala Harris potentially as well. Uh, we've, we've heard a lot about her, but what can she inject not only uh, into the DNC, which is going to be very strange anyway in a kind of virtual world as well, but in the campaign in the run-up? Well, I think what we've seen even in these first few days is energy um, because of who she is, what she represents um, as a black woman um, who is younger uh, than Biden by, by a good couple of, uh, of couple of decades. She's also just an extraordinarily talented politician. She gives a great speech. She's funny. She's warm. She's pretty tough. Uh, many Americans have seen her questioning some uh, uh, Trump administration officials on Capitol Hill in her role as a U.S. senator. And it's clear that she won't back down from a fight and an awful lot of Democrats who really weren't super enthusiastic about Biden, even if they were, you know, reassured um, by his his tone and his style are, are, are pretty excited. We'll see a lot more when she speaks uh, on uh, on Wednesday, Wednesday night. Yeah, look, I mean, let's be honest about it, Peter. If we saw that ticket with the pair of them on this side of the Atlantic, we wouldn't call them radical left. But compared with where the mainstream uh, and the center is and the <clears throat> bell curve of opinion in the United States is, perhaps they are quite radical left compared with what has come before as well. Uh, how much is that going to be the tag which uh, the Republicans and the administration uh, really try to paint uh, the pairing of Biden and Harris with uh, as we go forward? Well, Steve, you're exactly right. That is the tack that the Republicans and Donald Trump are taking, that somehow Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are radical left, which is farcical. 
They um, they are to the left of center. Uh, this is a country that um, uh, has been pulled to the right in recent years by the Republican Party, which has a majority in the U.S. Senate and has Donald Trump as president. Um, but uh, Biden and Harris are both pretty solidly in the progressive uh, mainstream, not at all radical left. It was striking. The Wall Street Journal, no fan of Democrats, um, had a front page story the other day uh, saying that Wall Street actually feels pretty good about Kamala Harris. Yeah, look, I remember reading uh, the biography, autobiography from uh, the former Secretary of State when she was defending her position on Libya. Uh, and I think it was called Hard Choices. I remember reading this a few years ago. But she carried on having to defend herself on Libya and email servers, Libya and email servers. And it really stuck throughout the campaign as well and became very divisive issues. Is it just this radical left target that actually the administration is going to try and aim uh, at Mr. Biden? Or is there something else that our viewers need to know? Well, what we've seen from Trump and his team is a real struggle to come up with a winning message this time around. They've tried all kinds of things against Democrats. They were hoping to run, I think, against uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are to the left of Joe Biden. And um, neither of them made it. They, they both finished behind Biden, who's a much more mainstream character. And right now, at least, um, their bet is that they can paint Harris and Biden as socialists, as a danger, and also as Democrats who will let violence run rampant. It's, it's, it's really a return to 1968 and Richard Nixon and law and order. Every, every so often, uh, Donald Trump tweets in all caps, uh, law and order. They're trying to really make Biden out to be someone he, he hasn't been in his, uh, in his career. Peter, excellent. Do you know, you're my first Slevin in about 20 years. You're not related to Jack Slevin, or you used to work for in the futures market, are you? Oh, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> OK. Uh, he, he was a rum character as well. Very interesting guy. Jack, if you're watching, I hope you're well. Right, Peter, thank you very much indeed for that. Peter Slevin. Professor of Politics and Media at Northwest University. Oh, those were the days. Right, OK, now, the President, Mr Trump, has threatened to trigger sanctions on Iran after failing to convince the UN Security Council of extending an arms embargo on the country. Mr Trump also said he would not attend a proposed Iran summit called for by the Russian President Vladimir Putin to avoid confrontation on the matter. This after the Russia and China vote, uh, they both voted against the continuing the ban, which is due to expire in October. Whilst 11 other members abstained, the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, called the decision a humiliating defeat for Mr. Trump. Uh, president Rouhani also voiced his opposition to the UAE-Israel deal and warned the Emirates of possible, possible political repercussions of the agreement. We are warning the UAE not to allow Israel to have a foothold in this region. If they do so, they will be seen differently and they will be treated differently. They must pay attention. So far, they've made a huge mistake and carried out a treacherous action. All right, as if by magic, I've appeared at the wall. And if you look at Friday's action, there wasn't a lot going on in the overall level of indices. But there's always a story in these markets. And for that, I'm looking at the week-to-date moves uh, on these major indices. And there is no doubt about it. And I know you all know this because I'm playing catch-up because I've been on vacation. You guys saw this and lived it. There is a rotation going on, isn't there? There's a rotation out of some of the, 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 the biggest winners of the year so far into some sectors where people are just having a dabble, seeing if they can push these sectors uh, a little bit further as well. So 
whilst we saw on the week-to-date moves, actually, the Nasdaq did absolutely zip. In fact, that move there, pretty much what it did the week-to-date, it was up 0.08 of 1%. But the S&P managed a little outperformance, up 0.6 of 1%, and the Dow managed a decent-sized outperformance, up 1.8%. Now, within that as well, and this is my point, really, uh, we saw uh, sectors that have been under a huge amount of pressure and will remain under a huge amount of pressure, no doubt about it. Uh, industrials, for instance, week-to-date, up 3.1%, uh, whereas technology didn't figure uh, amongst the biggest gainers. But year-to-date, no doubt about it, technology is still the big standout. In fact, technology is 60% higher than energy year-to-date. Energy down 37%, technology up 24% as well. Should we have a look at the Treasuries? Again, is this safe haven trade still working for you? Well, perhaps not as much as it had in previous uh, sessions as well. We saw uh, at the, the, the height uh, of the uh, concerns and building up of Treasury positions. We saw a, a five handle on the yield now back up to virtually a 0.7. I say 0.7 rather than a five, yeah? We're, this is where we're at. 0.7 of 1% for the 10-year benchmark as well. 1.4% for your 30-year paper. Uh, the five-year, uh, a measly 0.29 as well. In terms of the data this week, which is going to shake you really, well, not a massive week, but better than you got elsewhere in the world. Empire State today, housing starts on Tuesday. On Friday, we've got the existing home sales. FOMC minutes on Wednesday, Philly Fed on Thursday as well. And talking of housing, have a look at this. So I'm going to put up some commodities for you as well. Now, normally we spend our time looking at the gold. Again, a little bit of rotation out of gold last week, wasn't there? 1943, uh, Brent crude gained on the week, as indeed did Light Sweet, but again, gave up some of the earlier gains. But look at this. I just stuck this one in. Look at that. Look not doing anything here. Really glacial lumber as well. And it's one of those ones where I watch at and I say, please, as a viewer, if you get involved in this, do it with money you can afford to lose in either direction. Because the moves on lumber this year have been ridiculous. Uh, And this is the point. There are some products which you can trade with a decent amount of liquidity. Brent crude. You can get in and out of this trade very easily. Whatever metrics you're using, whether it's futures, whether it's ETFs, you can trade this one. Gold. You can trade this one pretty easy as well. Be very careful when looking at some of these momentum trades. Now, if you have been long lumber this year, you have made the trade perhaps of your life, perhaps of the century. Lumber this year is up 79%, quarter to date up 66.7%, 24% up month to date, week to date up 12% as well. So ridiculous moves, okay? But the liquidity in these contracts is minimal for you. And I'm going to say it, you're probably going to be a tourist if you're getting involved in this one. I know that's a derogatory term normally, but I don't mean it derogatory. You probably don't spend your life trading lumber futures. But if you do get involved in this one, just beware. Momentum trades can turn sour and they can turn vicious as well. But just very interesting to see ahead of all those housing numbers what lumber is still doing. Right, Asian markets, ex-Korea. We do not have South Korean markets. They're taking a well-earned rest. It's very interesting, isn't it? Look, let's have a look at this. The Nikkei on the back of those appalling, looking backwards, albeit second quarter uh, GDP numbers, down seven tenths of 1%, as indeed is the ASX 200. But really strong gains uh, on the Shanghai Composite, 2.4% higher. The Hang Seng over in Hong Kong, 1.6% up. So, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Do we say Berkshire or Berkshire? I'm not sure I think Berkshire. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway has slashed its positions in some of America's largest banks, including millions of shares in Wells Fargo and JP Morgan. Uh, this, as new regulatory findings show top investors focused on technology. There you go again, the momentum trade. Technology and consumer stocks during this period. Well, Dominic Chu has more. It is that time of year again. Every quarter, the biggest money managers in America have to tell the investing public what they've bought and sold in their portfolios. These so-called 13F filings are mandated by the Securities Exchange Commission and represent a snapshot in time of all of their portfolios for big asset managers at each 
calendar quarter end. Now, the big caveat is this latest round of holdings data is as of the end of June, so it's already a month and a half old. Some of the interesting highlights so far, a seemingly thematic bet on Horizon payments technology. That's what hedge fund titan David Tepper of Appaloosa Management might be doing. Filings show his funds took new positions in companies like MasterCard, Visa, Square, and PayPal. Many of those stocks have surged since the COVID-19 lows. PayPal in particular is now worth around $225 billion in total market value after a 129% gain since mid-March. Speaking of technology, noted investor Chase Coleman of Tiger Global Management made some moves around cloud computing, including a large increase in holdings of CrowdStrike, Salesforce, Datadog, Workday, and ServiceNow, as well as boost to some stocks seen as beneficiaries of the stay-at-home trade, like Peloton and Zoom Video. And then there's the one and only Berkshire Hathaway, the diversified financial and industrial conglomerate run by famed billionaire investor Warren Buffett. It trimmed stakes in some of its largest bank holdings, including stakes in Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, PNC Financial, and Bank of New York Mellon. It also completely dissolved, got rid of its stake in Goldman Sachs. But we do know that more recently Berkshire has boosted its stake in Bank of America, but those latest moves come after the cutoff for these regulatory filings just now. Berkshire also sold off all of its common shares in Occidental Petroleum and took a new stake in gold miner Barrick Gold. Just some of the interesting moves being made by some of the investing legends in the second quarter of this year. Dominic Chu, CNBC Business News. There you go. Dominic said Berkshire. I like Berkshire. It's a county in England, by the way. Right, coming up on the show, the CEO of CureVac talks up his company's vaccine candidate refusing to rule out an accelerated approval process. Plus, we've got more from our exclusive interview with the White House Senior Advisor, Jared Kushner. Check out the latest on the Scoreboard podcast. Plus, plus, in 39 minutes, we have a treat for you. Don't forget, you've got a special treat, a Monday treat for you, because you're all a bit downbeat after the weekend. Uh, it's Monday morning, 39 minutes, big treat. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The number of confirmed fatalities related to coronavirus is over 774,000 globally with over 21 million confirmed cases. Deaths in the U.S. exceeded 1,000 for the fifth straight day on Saturday. Australia suffered its deadliest day with 25 deaths in Victoria. Spain and Italy have ordered nightclubs and bars to close whilst restrictions have been tightened in South Korea's capital. Shares in German biotech company CureVac closed up two. 149%, wow, uh, in their debut session on the, uh, on the exchange in New York on Friday. The firm is developing a potential COVID-19 vaccine with the CEO hoping for accelerated approval for its candidate drug as well. Uh, Juliana joins us with more. Juliana, how can a stock close up 249 I know you're here to talk about their potential for the vaccine, but if a stock closes up 249% in the debut, does that mean they were priced incredibly badly? 
Well, Steve, that, that, that is certainly one question to ask here, but perhaps I'm better placed to talk about uh, what we know about their potential vaccine. Certainly a lot of optimism behind this share price, and you, you have to question whether it was priced appropriately. But in terms of the vaccine timeline, the CEO was speaking this weekend to the German press and said that he's not ruling out an accelerated approval process for its prospective COVID-19 vaccine. On Friday, the company had said they were on track to put a vaccine on the market by mid-2021, but a speedy approval could mean an even earlier release date. He didn't give any details. Now, the company listed on Friday, as you mentioned, on the NASDAQ, raising just over $200 million. They're going to use this money to conduct trials for the vaccine. This company is backed by Bill Gates, who's been hugely active in the race to find a vaccine. And we had a chance to speak to the CEO of CureVac on Friday, Franz Werner Haas. Uh, take a listen to what he had to say about this vaccine. This is a unique opportunity for us to make a difference, to show that this technology platform is able to transform really the medicine, quick and fast development of a vaccine, which is safe, tolerable, and then efficacious which secures, and, and that's exactly what RNA is all about. Now, CureVac's approach uses messenger RNA technology, and no vaccine using this kind of technology has ever been approved by regulators before. It's the same approach that's being used by Moderna as well as the BioNTech-Pfizer partnership. In terms of pricing, the CFO was speaking this weekend to the Financial Times saying that they do not plan to provide this vaccine at cost, which some of the other vaccine makers have pledged to do. They said they would give it a competitive price while still preserving some ethical margin. So perhaps that factored into that big share price move that we saw on Friday, uh, Steve, but certainly a, a big reaction from investors. And that was before these comments around a potentially accelerated timeline. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.